Thanks for listening to show 72 of the C-Suite podcast that's being recorded at Mad World, Europe's only conference and exhibition putting mental health at the heart of a cross-industry, cross-functional agenda. Once again, as we did in show 65 of this series, we've partnered up with Nuffield Health to enable us to cover this important topic, and we've set ourselves up on Nuffield Health's exhibition stand here at the event to record this episode. My name's Russell Goldsmith, and I'll be chatting with a number of the speakers from today's conference, which we hope will provide a real flavour and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed and I'm thrilled to kick things off with today's keynote speaker, Sir Ian Cheshire, who is chair of Barclays UK and campaign chair for the Mental Health Initiative Heads Together. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sir Ian. As I mentioned just there on the intro, we're going to hear from a number of experts on this podcast, and they will be sharing case studies and best practices on this topic from both large and small businesses. I thought it would be good uh, just to set the scene on where you think our attitudes are towards mental health and if more work is still required to uh, change them. I think what we're seeing is a big shift going on right now in attitudes to mental health and particularly mental health at the workplace Um, but we're starting from a very long way back Um, this is uh, an area where the prevailing issue for years and years has been stigma people not being able to talk about it at all so I think we've started to see uh, that breaking down but certainly not gone and a lot of organisations are now thinking okay well I can talk about it but what do I now do about it so I think we're at the early stages of the doing part but we've we've definitely seen a shift in the stigma sure Um, you were a member of the leaders panel that contributed to the uh, Stevenson Farmer Review of Mental Health and and Employers and that's called Thriving at Work um, and that was requested by by the Prime Minister at the start of 2017. The report included some hugely concerning statistics. I just wanted to share a few of those on this podcast with our, our listeners before I ask you a question on it. So, for example, 300,000 people with a long-term mental health problem lose their jobs each year and at a much higher rate than those with physical health conditions. And around 15% of people at work have sy- symptoms of an existing uh, mental health condition. Now, the report also detailed the huge annual cost of mental health health to employers of between 33 billion and 42 billion pounds, uh, to government of between 24 and 27 billion, and to the economy as a whole of between 74 billion and 99 billion uh, pounds per year. So that's, that's huge numbers. It, it's a year on since that report was uh, delivered. What's been the response to it, and what would you say is the role that business has to play to have a positive impact on, on some of those numbers? Well, one of the many things that have been going on is that uh, as a result of the review and the call for action, actually the Royal Foundation and Heads Together have helped put together a a mental health at work uh, portal, which is a place to go, particularly for those SMEs that don't have big HR departments, to find resources and find ways of tackling this issue. Because I think there's no doubt that business, if it wants to do something about it, is looking for answers, and so we've got to help provide it. So that was one of the things that the review called for, which has already happened. Right. I think I think there's no doubt also that, that businesses uh, have got that got to find their own particular language, their own particular way of doing this. But that there are a lot of common there's a lot of common ground. So one of the keys to my mind is collaborate on this topic because this is something that we can learn from each other. And the business case that that is there, I think, for looking after your employees, is available for everyone. Right. Well, I, I should just add, listeners can uh, simply search online for Thriving at Work, um, and they should be able to find and download that report from the Gov. 
www.gov.uk website and there's references to all those uh, stats that I mentioned. Um, are you able to share any of the work that, that you're doing at Barclays UK in this whole area? Yeah, I've been only at Barclays relatively short periods or a year and a bit, but um, I've been really encouraged to see the amount of work going on under the This Is Me campaign, uh, and which is about sharing stories about real people at Barclays talking about how they've dealt with their challenges. And we're now seeing also two levels of training going out for managers, uh, basic awareness and then a more confidence level, which is really helping people, particularly as a line manager, it can be a bit disconcerting about knowing one of your teams having a challenge, what do I do about it? I'm probably going to make it worse if I say the wrong thing, help. And helping reinforce people so that they can be the person with whom that, that guy or girl can have a conversation with is really key. So we're seeing a huge push and tomorrow on World Mental Health Day, Joe Staley is running a town hall in, in the global headquarters uh, to underline his support for this. Great. Um, you're involved in, in Heads Together initiative, which I, I mentioned at the start. I felt I couldn't let you go uh, without uh, getting a quick overview of, of what your role there is, but also what your thoughts on, uh, are on the impact that a charity uh, that's been able to call on, on uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and uh, the Duke of Sussex for huge support. What, what, what kind of impact has it had in this whole space? I, I, it's amazing impact. I mean, we started with a blank sheet of paper. We decided early on that this was something the principals wanted to, to really make a high-profile impact, and we decided it would be about stigma and support. So let, let's change the stigma, let's create support. But the, the network of eight charities coming together and, and the sort of humility with which the principals approach this, not with the answers, but they could help shine a spotlight on this. And what we saw as we went through the campaign is this unbelievable takeoff of, of attitudes and interests in this topic once they came forward and talked about particularly their own experiences, which was a very brave thing for them to do. We're now into a different phase. We're putting together programs. There's a schools program, there's a services program, and then now recently the mental health at work program. So the, the switch, the campaign is now pivoting. It'll carry on campaigning and, and the, the principals, will, Duke and Duchess, will be talking about mental health tomorrow. But now we're into, okay, still talk about that, but now let's do some doing. Yeah. And I think that's a really exciting phase. Excellent. Finally, on your keynote just now, you shared a few uh, sort of key learnings for the audience. <laughs> I was just hoping you might quickly share some of those with our, with our listeners yeah. now as well. Three quick learnings. Firstly, um, the workplace is a key force for good in mental health. And although there's a lot of chat about stress in the workplace, actually keeping people in work, keeping them engaged, supporting them uh, and providing that environment is really important. So this is something business ought to be doing. Second bit is do make the business case. Don't do this as philanthropy. This is in business's interest to look after our teams and motivate our teams by, by what we're doing. And the final message, which is probably bad news for CEOs, is target your CEO because the leadership it makes a huge difference in this area. But give them something tangible to do. Don't just sort of guilt trip them. Give them a, a number of things they can actively support in a way that they can contribute because most CEOs that I know do want to help. Fantastic. So Ian Cheshire, thanks so much for joining us and battling over the increasing noise here in the uh, exhibition area. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's an absolute honour to welcome our next guest, uh, Professor Dame Carol Black, to the show. Uh, Dame Carol is the Principal of Newnham College, Cambridge, uh, but has previously held roles including President of the Royal College of Physicians, uh, of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, and of the British Lung Foundation. Blushy uh, has chaired the UK Health Honours Committee, uh, was National Director for Health and Work from 2006 to 2012, and continues to be 
an expert on uh, an expert advisor on health uh, and work to the Department of Health and Public Health uh, England. So, Dame Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, it's we're, we're in the uh, the break at the conference here, so it's really really busy at the moment. Um, so, apologies uh, for, for listeners for that. Um, you've just taken part in in a panel session here at the conference, uh, which was build uh, the future of mental health at work. Uh, what, what were the main points that the audience took away from that session? I hope the main points that the audience took away was that they could do something in their organisations. We talked about the importance of leadership, of making sure the CEO walks the walk, not just talks the talk, uh, the importance of board engagement, that you need to really get the top of the house to understand health and well-being and really get behind it. And we did a lot of talking about how you train and support your line managers to support their people. We also broke out a little into um, talking about financial concerns, especially in young people, that they are worried, they feel financially insecure, and yet they want flexibility in their work. Um, And finally, we talked uh, really about those who often have a very hard time in the work So uh, ethnic minorities, uh, people who may not really be noticed and looked after well. So many issues there. Um, What what I didn't mention in my introduction was that uh, you've completed two independent reviews for the UK government on the health of the UK working population. How much of a shift have you seen in the focus of mental health in the workplace over those reviews? And how much more is needed to be done by uh, employers to support mental health effectively? In my first review in 2008, I highlighted mental health as one of the major issues that made people take sick leave or leave the workplace. I think it took another five years before the government started to think this was a really important issue. I think employers, particularly the big employers, got it quite early. You know, the BTs of this world, the John Lewis, um, the Sainsbury's, they understood the mental health issues quite early. There's so much more to do, because although people accept there is a challenge, what they often say to me is, what do I do about it? What are the things that will make a difference? And I think for small companies, it's even more difficult, because they have no HR, no occupational health. You've got to make it really simple. And this is when I think technology can help, because often, and you can use an app or something online. So more and more people and the government are now very engaged. So that is good news. Thank, thank you for battling over the announcements there. Um, now, now, you've been working with Vitality Health on their latest survey into Britain's healthiest uh, workplace, uh, which was delivered in partnership with the University of Cambridge, Rand Europe and Mercer. Do, do you have any of the results that you can share with us? Yes, uh, our results are from the year um, 2016 to 17. Right, OK. About 32,000 people. And just some of the headline results, that about 5.6% of that population 
reported uh, that they had felt symptoms of depression and that if they were depressed, then that amounts to about 19 days of lost productivity. So that's one big issue. 54% of those who were uh, surveyed said they felt stressed. And 25% of them said they felt more than two or three elements of stress. They were really considerably stressed. The causes of that are interesting. The causes were lack of control at work, being absolutely told what to do all the time. The second major issue was change in the workplace when you're not consulted. And the third is relationship with your line manager. If you've got a poor relationship, that really causes stress. And the next thing that came through very clearly was the relationship of financial stress, worrying about your financial situation and the effect that that could have on both your physical and mental health. It is very pervasive of your well-being. Um, That that survey uh, underpinned the solution that's being offered in a uh, a new joint venture between Vitality and our podcast sponsors, Nuffield Health. Um, It's called Healthy Workplace, which you've now become the chair of. Um, So another thing to add to your your list of work, Uh, the the joint venture announcement stated, um, so I, I read this off the website, it's looking to provide large employers with a health and engagement solution for their entire workforce, and it's been described as taking a holistic approach to employee health with the aim of improving productivity and boosting the business uh, bottom line. I was just keen to, to understand what attracted you to the role and why you think it can make a difference uh, to, in, you know, in, in the okay. workplace. What attracted me to the role was the work I'd done for five years on this survey because I could see the challenges that, that were in the workplace, both for the employer and the employee, whether that be mental health, musculoskeletal, chronic conditions, worrying about your finance, bullying at work, whatever. And one felt that you could see the problems, but where was the solution? And it just seemed that Vitality, that had done so much work on incentives, on understanding how to enable people to change their behaviour and to improve their health, should link up with Nuffield Health, which had such good health interventions. It was a very good joining. And what finally persuaded me was that they were keen to make sure that every employee got the benefit of this. Because when you think about it, it's quite easy to get to the top, the third, in a triangular organisation. The people at the top earn more, they probably eat better, they smoke less, they worry more about their health and well-being. This programme is designed to help the porters, the cleaners, the people who often don't think this is for them. And so it was this holistic view of looking at all the challenges and trying to really provide a solution. So I'm really excited. That's brilliant. Well, just to add, if you want to uh, find out more about that joint venture between Nuffield Health and Vitality uh, Health, then just go to nuffieldhealth.com. 
www.ipsos.com slash healthy workplace. Um, but I have to say, in researching for this uh, interview with you, Dane Carroll, I watched your TEDx uh, talk uh, from earlier this year on the topic of retirement. Um, with all that you're involved in, and as I mentioned, you've just taken on another role now as chair of, of that joint venture. Do you, do you have any intention of slowing down? Um, maybe a little. I sometimes feel I'd like long weekends. <laughs> okay. But, you know, I need something to get up for in the morning. I need meaningful activity. Now, it, it could be lots of other things, but I love what I do. And it's changed over my career. I haven't always done uh, the same things, but each of the things I do gives me interest. I feel I, I hope I serve some people in doing it. Um, I feel I'm part of life. And I think that is so, so important. So I just hope I can go on contributing and having purposeful activity well for as long as I can. Well, you're, you're certainly doing that. And I, and I recommend everyone should search and, and watch that talk if they're looking for a bit of inspiration for their day. But for now, uh, Dame Carol, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, chat to us. A, a pleasure. So joining me now is Brendan Street, uh, Nuffield Health's Professional Head of Emotional Wellbeing, uh, who's been chairing a roundtable uh, session focusing on the role that language has to play in emotional wellbeing in the workplace, uh, which, given we're having this conversation at an event with MAD in the title, I thought it was quite apt. Very apt indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting, the word, the word MAD, because normally what you get with, uh, with people with lived experience of a certain condition, they, they tend to reclaim words, and MAD is probably one of those words. I think what's difficult, though, in the workplace at the moment, I just don't, I'm not sure we're, we're quite ready for it because right, okay. the, language in, the language within the workplace and people being reluctant to talk about mental health, one of the reasons that they are reluctant to talk about mental health is you've got, got this toxic sort of language around mental health. MAD's a good example in terms of uh, a term that actually means, if you look at the derivation of the word MAD, it means foolish or changed abnormally. But then if you look at some of the other words, Words or the other phrases that we see used around um, mental mental health and mental illness, even even actually even mental health itself is seen by people as, as just being the absence of mental illness. Right. And I think we're not even at a, a phase yet where people see mental health as more than the absence of mental illness. That mental health is something that you can improve. And I don't think the the debate has moved on enough to maybe use MAD within workplaces. I don't think right, it, it, quite, I think yeah. it put people off because we're not far enough along the road. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll come back to you on the, on the, on the language uh, side of stuff. Um, the, the headline stat that you shared in your session today, uh, which was actually from research carried out by Legal and General in 2017, and it showed that only 4% of employees who had experienced depression and just 5% uh, who had experienced anxiety felt able to talk to their manager or superior about it. Um, and, th and this is... The, the ridiculous bit, yet a huge 78% of employers believe their employees would be comfortable discussing such problems at work. That's a huge uh, disconnect in, in those findings. What, why do you think that is? 
I'm not sure in terms of the double. That, that study's interesting in terms of the double disconnect. So yeah. obviously, low, low. I've got a theory about why low numbers of people are willing to talk about uh, mental health in the workplace. In terms of that disconnect, you wonder whether that it was it was 200 employers, and you just wonder whether they're almost waiting for somebody to come and talk to them, right. but don't realise on the on the ground level that people are saying, nah. So they think they've done enough to, yeah. to make it a great environment, but and th- actually. Yeah, and I think some, and, that, and that's a good point in terms of doing enough because it's almost like you need to keep things going. Yeah. It's not enough to just do something on mental health uh, awareness week or, 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 or mental health um, awareness day. You need to do something through, throughout the year because otherwise people forget. It, it, it doesn't carry on the momentum. So, so and, and, and on the bit that you said you, you, you feel you've got uh, you know some theories on the, on the low numbers. What? Yeah, the low numbers are interesting because they so there's the study from the general that I quoted, but also if you look at business in the community, so their 2017 study said only 11% of people would feel happy talking to their employer. They've repeated it this year and it's still only 16%. So that's 84% of people that don't feel able. So there's something, because it's not it's not moving, that figure isn't moving. I think there's, some, there's other things going on there. And I think part of that is that the people fear discrimination. So there's a big, there's a big volume of people, particularly in the city, you'll find that if I put my hand up and say that I've got mental health problems, then I'll, I'll appear weak and I won't get that promotion. So it'll hurt, hurt my career. So I think there's that no way, I'm just not going to talk about it. But I think there's also a know-how, and this comes back to language. And I think because the language around mental health, one got medicalized by professionals, so you have um, obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, terms that don't mean anything to people. They haven't got the words to talk about it. And I think the second bit in terms of the know-how is that people, that, that language being toxified and, and, and being associated with weak or other. And I think the final one, which is probably massively pertinent, is there's no why. Why would I put my hand up and tell my employer what am I going to get? Because typically employers will tell you to go back to your GP or maybe access the employer assistance programme. Not being funny, but I could do that myself. Yeah. I don't yeah. need to complicate it by involving my employer. Well, you, you mentioned there about you know being seen as, as weak. Um, you know, if they start a conversation, what do companies need to do then to overcome those concerns, such you know, such as that issue? I think about it, it, it's changing the language around mental health and moving away maybe from a one in four stat. So one in four of his experience a mental health problem in, in, in any 12 months to more of a four in four. So we've all got emotional well-being needs, and they just vary day to day, week to week, year to year, just depending on what's going on in our lives. And I think by moving more to a four in four, you get away, because I think the problem with one in four is it is a bit othering. So my, for example, my lifetime risk of, of developing lung cancer is about one in 17. But I don't know about you, I'm with, I'm with, I'm over here with 15 people, and that, that person's over there. I feel sorry for him, but yeah. he's yeah. over there. So it's a bit othering. And I think the other thing that one in four does, it, 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 it looks at diagnoses rather than, so it looks at what is wrong with you rather than what has happened to you. And I think if employers can move from the one in four message to yeah. a four in four message that this is about all of us, then you'll, and if you're asking questions about what is happening to you, you're talking a bit more about human distress rather than diagnoses. And I think it's the diagnoses bit that puts off employees. Right. Uh, 
going back to the, the, what we talked about at the start of the interview, commenting on the fact that MAD is in the title of this event, how much work is needed in ensuring the choice of words to, uh, you know, to describe mental health then can be less negative um, you know, to help in overcoming some of the barriers that, that you're talking about here? Yeah, I think maybe it's twofold. I don't want people to feel scared about talking about men mental health and think I'll get the wrong words, but I think words are important in terms of mental health. So and the obvious one is committed. So somebody committed suicide, and it's often that it, they're often paired together. Whereas the me, there are media guidelines to say that you shouldn't pair the two together, but they still are. And I think if you look at it, what else do we commit in society? Crimes or sins? And I think again that language matters because it because it gives that gives that message to people. Yeah. So I think in terms of being careful about language, it's just giving. I think it's giving people information in terms of because we often hear suffering depression. And it's, it's somebody living with depression, not somebody suffering with it. I think the suffering turns it into a victim sort of status. So I think it's, it's things like that. But I think mental health professionals like me could maybe do a lot more to say this this is why this language doesn't work and this is what we can do about it. Yeah. And I think it's in employers maybe using mental health professionals like that to say, well, how do we talk? We, we don't know how to talk to our employees. What, sh what should we do? Well, and, and picking up on that on that point about the no why, um, you know, because you said, oh, I, you know, if I'm told to go and see my GP, I can do, you know, that myself. So, so, you know, if if someone is experiencing depression, depression or, or anxiety, what are the incentives uh, for them to speak to their employer? What can, you know, what can the employers do then? I think it's probably a range of things, and, and maybe bespoke to the employer. But what ultimately what you need is you need signposts within the workplace that basically say, actually, a conversation from you about mental health is both welcome and expected. And that might be a range of things. It could be mindfulness type drop-ins, it might be resilience training sessions, it might be uh, um, a visible presence of an EAP scheme, it might be mental health champions. The biggest thing might be a CEO that actually says, I've had mental health problems in the past, Yeah. come and talk to us. Yeah. Okay, and so to finish off, uh, what would your advice be then to uh, to business leaders, to those CEOs, uh, to improve and encourage the conversation around uh, you know emotional well-being uh, within the workplace? I think it's, it's just to make a concerted effort to shift the conversation along, to shift it away from the one in four to the four in four and yeah. say this is about all of us. All of us have got oxygen needs. If those needs were compromised in the workplace, we'd work pretty hard to get them fixed. And I think CEOs need to look at emotional well-being a, a bit more like that to say how do we fix it together. And so is there somewhere for our listeners to go for further information? Yeah, nuffieldhealth.com slash corporate hyphen wellbeing. Fantastic. Uh, Brendan Street, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Helping your employees look after their health and wellbeing is good for your business, but it can feel difficult. And while off-the-shelf solutions are frequently one-size-fits-all, at Nuffield Health, we build a strategy that addresses your workforce challenges. As the leading provider of corporate wellbeing in the UK, we have over 10 years of experience helping employers address physical and mental health issues at work and providing the ROI. To discuss your corporate wellbeing needs, why not get in touch at nuffieldhealth.com.
Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me now ahead of a talk they are giving together here at uh, Mad World are Dr. Sean Davis, Global Director of Safety, Health, uh, Wellbeing and Sustainability at Royal Mail Group, and Jessica Hayes, Head of Talent at McCann World Group, uh, but who formerly held a similar role at Wonderbly, a company that produces personalised children's books, uh, which is who she's going to be talking about today. Um, and that means that we get two very different perspectives uh, on implementing wellbeing programs across uh, different sized organizations. So welcome to you both. Thanks for giving up some time this morning to chat to us. Thank you. Uh, Jess, let's come to you first. Um, maybe you can start by giving us a quick overview um, of Wonderbly for those uh, listeners who may not have heard about the organization before. Yeah, absolutely. So Wonderbly is a VC-backed startup uh, headquartered here in London. We, uh, well, we were, I don't work there currently. I, I, I left earlier this year, but uh, when I joined, we were about 30 people. At our highest point, we went to about 120. Um, and uh, we kind of mainly were contributed of, uh, made of talent from the tech space, creative space, and then kind of operations as well and marketing. Right. And what kind of things did you implement there in terms of well-being strategies? Yeah, so I built the entire HR strategy from scratch there, which is the kind of joy of working in a sandbox-like tech startup. Um, but we uh, we did multiple things. So we implemented a very clear, robust mental health uh, program around the policy implementation. So we had a matched mental well-being and physical well-being policy around how employees could feel comfortable taking sick days if they needed them for any kind of reason. Um, we also had Sanctus, which is another startup we partnered here, partnered with here in London. Uh, Sanctus provide on-site mental health coaching to employees of various different businesses, primarily uh, startups that kind of suffer from the habit of making themselves like kind of fail fast, do things always on, um, and kind of trying to tackle that culture in startups. Um, and we also did a couple of other programs internally as well to kind of counteract the fact that our people team was very small with limited budgets. Um, um, such as a, a program we call Wonder Buddies, um, and also some really good development of our values around kindness, curiosity, and courage, which were all kind of rooted in the idea of mental well-being for ourselves and our families. Right. Loads going on. Sean, uh, let's bring you in at, at, at this point. Um, someone coming from one of those larger organizations. Um, so the Royal Mail has around 150,000 employees. You've been in your role there for six years. How easy has it been uh, to implement any of the changes you wanted to make in a business? that is 502 years old, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, in terms of scale, it's enormous. 150,000 people. We've got a, a, a huge estate, 1,400 delivery officers, a number of mail centres, a number of regional officers. So it's huge. But in terms of being able to uh, to influence that, it's been... Um, there's been a lot of pull from the organisation. I think we're in that really... Um, uh, advantageous, fortuitous period now where there's a lot of societal pressures on, on improving mental health awareness and that flows through. When you're in an organisation the size of Royal Mail that reflects the um, the country in which we live and operate in, I, I think you get that pull. So we're pushing it from a corporate point of view but there is a real pull from the organisation as well. So it's been, I think, uh, uh, the real kind of sweet spot for us. Um, you're also here uh, talking about the launch of, of your new book, um, which focuses obviously on this on this topic. The book is called Positive Male Mind, uh, Overcoming Mental Health Problems. I don't normally do book plugs, um, but all of the proceeds of this one's going to charity, so it's for a good cause. Um, can you give us a bit of background to the research you've done for the book? Because I know it's, it's done, Royal Mail's been supportive of it. Yeah, it? yeah. So, so it's sponsored by, by Royal Mail and by yeah. Optima, our occupational health provider. Right. All the royalties, as you said, go to two charities 
charities. First one being Action for Children, second one being the Roland Hill Fund, which is the uh, uh, the benevolent uh, fund for, for postal workers. Um, as I said, all royalties go back into that. But in terms of what I've used Royal Mail as a, a research base, and the book is built on my doctorate. I did a doctorate which looked at coaching, well-being and organisational culture and the way that organisations uh, respond to the mental health challenge, and particularly men. In, in Royal Mail, it's 85% men. Right. My background was construction and waste, again, which was uh, a dominant male-dominated uh, industry. And the way that men connect with mental health services is very different to the way that, that women do. But the book looks at, uh, it's very deliberately written to be a, a quick reference guide. It's written with men in mind, so short, punchy, snappy chapters. But uh, it's also there for people who are bothered about men, colleagues, partners, uh, wives, your children, etc., who can look at that and can use that to kind of inform themselves and to then, uh, as, a, as a consequence of that, be able to educate and inform the important men in their lives. Right. And, and, and Jess, what can larger established organisations like Royal Mail learn from startups like, like Wonderfully, where, where you work then? Uh, it's something I think about a lot, actually. I've just moved uh, to a much larger organisation and I'm trying to put some of these thoughts I had during that time into practice. Um, I think one of the things that uh, really strikes me that startups do very, very well is launch programmes where they partner with other businesses and then iterate on those programmes constantly. And they really do launch them as uh, pieces of work that can be constantly looked at, reconsidered and changed from the needs of the employees, which is something that I find at larger companies there's a little bit of fear around. Um, and fear about not launching something perfectly and not having the ideal take up and like maybe pilot programs is something that large organizations can consider in small or regional offices and it's something that we're really trying to do now at McCann World Group. Right. Uh, uh, Sean, you're nodding away there. I am really, really. <laughs> I could not agree with that more in terms of, I think the um, the principle of just do it, the Nike principle as I call it, just do it. Don't wait for perfection. If you wait for the perfect strategy, the perfect time, the perfect launch, you'll be waiting a long time. Right. So I think organizations like a large organization can learn a lot from that. Just do it and, and iterate and learn from the beneficiaries or the recipients of the the, uh, the campaigns or strategies that you've got and fine-tune it along the way. So certainly don't wait for perfection, just do something. Right. Uh, well, this has been great. Thank you both for joining us uh, today. Uh, good luck with your session uh, later. Um, just a reminder, Sean's book, Positive Male Mind, Overcoming Mental Health Problems, is out now. Uh, we'll put a link on where you can buy that on Amazon on, on our show notes, although I'm sure it's available on all bookstores. Will that be correct, Sean? That's right. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, thanks to uh, both of you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So I'm uh, thrilled to be joined here on the Nuffield Health stand at the extremely busy and loud mad world uh, by Jack Parsons, the CEO of the Big Youth Group. Jack is featuring in an uh, interview on the uh, stage later today, giving the millennial perspective on mental health. And uh, whilst in 2017 he was named Young Digital Leader of the Year and Most Connected Young Entrepreneur, um, he has also faced his own mental health issues in that time which he openly talks about and shares on his uh, social media feeds uh, so Jack welcome to the podcast Thanks, um, Russell. Uh, for those listeners who may not be aware of the big youth group it would be great if you can just give us a quick overview of the work that you're uh, doing there yes no definitely thanks Russell and it's good to be here today I grew up with one school jumper and an alcoholic parent and I had the poor career advice uh, growing up 
I'm 25 years old now, and I realised that in corporate, in education, and young people themselves, they face different challenges at different stages of their life. So I wanted to set something up that was meaningful, that helped young people to create work and live. So the Big Youth Group is a marketplace that helps young people in achieve, achieve incredible things right. across the world. Excellent. And, and how and how long has that been going now? So my current, the Big Youth Group has been going for eight months now. We've got over 1,200 people involved from wow. full-time staffs, volunteers, ambassadors. We've partnered with over 200 brands, and it's going very well. Obviously, any leader in any business, it's so challenging, yeah, and every day you face a new challenge, but it's about keeping yourself focused. Fantastic. Um, I, I know mental health is, is a topic close to your heart, which is why you were so keen to be here at Mad World and, and come on the podcast today. I mentioned on the intro uh, just before that you openly talk about having faced your own mental health health issues. Do you mind sharing the background to that with, with us? Of course. So November 2017, which was quite recent in, in, in factual, I started to see some issues around myself and I didn't kind of understand what that meant. I used to get really anxious. I used to go home and feel very lonely. And I didn't understand that I faced any mental health issues because anyone at any age, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So how do you know that you've got mental health? Oh, I'm just tired. I'm just stressed today. And this started happening when I exited my first business, when I had a number of people around me that said they were around me and were my friends and were my mentors disappeared. So the mental health started then. And ever since, it took me about three Three months until January that I actually posted my first LinkedIn status to say, guys, I think there's an issue. Can anyone kind of help me? Right. And I didn't know what to expect. That reached 15 million people online on LinkedIn alone. I had 25,000 messages saying, I've got mental health. I don't know what to do. I had one Muslim girl come to me because you've announced that you've got mental health. I'm going to go and tell my strict Muslim parents and now I'm not going to do something silly at the weekend. So it was a real eye-opener for me yeah. that actually we are all human. We all face different challenges. We all have different stories and there's a lot of individuals suffering with mental health and I wanted to, on the journey, while suffering mental health myself, I wanted to showcase that it's okay to speak up, get some, some support and have people around you that are, are facing the same challenges. So did that suddenly put you in a, in a different almost place of responsibility with such you know all those messages that you're coming back compared to obviously where you started off in your career and then now suddenly you're, you're you know becoming this spokesperson for mental health almost that, you know for the, for that age group firstly i wished i never put the status out um I wasn't ready. Maybe I wasn't ready myself. Right. But then all of a sudden, I'm now the expert and the specialist. Yeah. I'm no expert or specialist. Everyone faces different challenges with mental health. And... I didn't know myself, so how am I meant to advise someone when I'm having the same issues myself? Yeah, so it's very challenging, very difficult to give advice. Um, all I could do is share love, really, with yeah. individuals and say, you know what, I'm facing it, it's okay. Find the miracle, because in every situation there is a miracle. Fantastic. Um, has that experience changed the way you work now? Because obviously you had your previous business and now you've you started the big youth group. Has it changed the way you know your approach to work and, and your colleagues at all? It 
it's absolutely changed everything. I am the most open, transparent book than you, that you'll ever get. I give complete ownership. I step back. I, before, when you're an entrepreneur with, with your products, you want to make sure it's perfect. Nothing is always perfect, including myself. So it was, it was so important. The learnings I've taken from going through mental health is that everyone has challenges and it's okay not to be okay. Sure. Um, coming back to the, the discussion you're involved in here at, at the event, how do you think the millennial perspective on, on mental health differs from others in the workplace? We live in a world where everyone is Instagrammable. Everything's perfect. You can put a filter on a rainy day. And we live in this world where it's not okay to speak about this stuff. It's not okay to showcase that you're not okay. And I believe that young people, especially 18 to 30 year olds, have it really hard because they're in a modern world with all this new technology and it's kind of biased. If you go online and read about mental health, if you go onto the NHS, it kind of throws you back a little bit when you read about their their advice because it's too serious. And then you go onto Instagram and there's some memes about it and some picture quotes. Is it okay to speak? How do I speak up about it? Who do I speak to? I think, yet again, young people don't know what they don't know. Right. And that's with mental health as well. Yeah. So just to finish off then, what was the one key message you want to give our listeners to take, to take from this podcast and, and from our world today? One thing I would love to share is if your friend or your family member, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your mate, your best friend is going through any difficulties, don't try and be the expert. Don't try and think that you can solve their issues because you know them. Take advice yourself. Become a supporter, but don't try and be the expert for that individual who's facing challenges because it it, it won't work. Excellent. Uh, Jack Parsons, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Good luck with your session later. Thank Um, you. And uh, we are back after this break. Cheers, Russell. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com Follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. So the next topic we're going to be discussing is how you deliver a wellbeing program on a tight budget. And uh, to tell us more is Becky Thosby, Group Head of Wellbeing at the Department for Transport. Uh, Becky has just been running a roundtable discussion on this very subject. Welcome to the podcast, Becky. How, how did that session go? I really enjoyed it. So we used the time to talk methodology, which kind of feels very structured, but it's focused on active listening. So through that, we were able to have a really, really rich discussion. And it was also great to have delegates from such a wide range of sectors and backgrounds so we got a real variety of experience at the table brilliant well we'll come on to a bit more detail about that in a second um, in terms of what what was discussed before we do that perhaps could you give us an overview of the uh, department for transport's own well-being strategy sure so we take a person-centered approach to well-being which means that we treat each individual as a unique person with a unique set of well-being needs so 
We do this because we link our wellbeing strategy very much with our inclusion strategy and being a person-centered approach we think makes it much more inclusive and it also recognizes that well-being is dependent on a multitude of factors many of which are interrelated so although some well-being issues do require specific and targeted interventions this approach also means that we're able to move on from treating issues like musculoskeletal health and mental health as single issues so our person-centered approach enables us to target the issues which are causing poor well-being amongst our employees while also affording support to the colleagues on specific issues when they need it. So, for example, if someone's experiencing depression because of a difficult life event, we would make sure that they get the support they need to deal with that event, as well as providing support for their depression. And within our overall strategy, we recognise mental health as an issue that can be both the cause of and the consequence of other wellbeing issues. So it sits as part of a web of interrelated factors. So because I don't have a budget, I've developed a three-strand model of how to deliver wellbeing without any money, and that was actually the basis of our roundtable discussion today. So the first strand is do it yourself. Draw upon your own rich set of skills and resources to deliver whatever you can yourself. So I'm a qualified wellbeing coach and mindfulness practitioner, so I deliver those services for DFT absolutely free. The second thing is to get other people to do it for you. So well-being, the beauty of well-being is that so many people are enthusiastic about it. And in a large organisation like mine, you can have a lot of people who have skills that they can already offer and people who are willing to volunteer to support the well-being agenda. So in DFT, for example, we've got a network of mental health buddies and mental health first aiders who are doing this on top of their full-time job absolutely for free. And then the third strand is make it look like something else and get their budget to pay for it. So for example, I've done some leadership and management training based around well-being and we used L&D colleagues to help me with that um, and also to use a bit of their budget to pay for that. So that's again one of the great things about well-being. You can make it look like a lot of other things, reward and benefits, L&D, staff engagement, and use their money to pay for it. So that in a nutshell was what was the basis of our roundtable discussion. Brilliant. Well, just picking up on, on what you were saying about employees, you've, you've got over 18,000 employees. So my question, and I don't know if this is going to be a bit harsh, but if well-being is, is such a priority, why are you having to manage it on a budget? Well, that is a good question, Russ, and I have asked myself that many times. Um, but seriously, it's no secret that money is really, really tight in the public sector. Um, so working in central government, it just means there is not much money to go around. But I also think I've actually become a victim of my own success in that I have shown my senior team that I can deliver a great wellbeing strategy on a budget, which means that they're not then that inclined to allocate me any money because I'm already doing it really well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well let, let's come back to, uh, to the round table that, that you've just hosted. What, what were the key issues that, that people were facing then? struck by was how the same themes were coming up that actually we're facing in DFT and loads there. So one of the things that I really liked was how to utilise the power of storytelling. That's something that we're really proud of in DFT is our culture of storytelling. There are a few organisations who were looking at that. Um, how to harness employee engagement to foster employee well-being. So engagement and well-being very much being two sides of the same coin and they can contribute 
value to each other. Tapping into resources that already exist in the organization. You know, one of the great things about well-being is that there's a lot of people out there that are enthusiastic about it. It's not like you're trying to get people to clean out the fridge. So it's quite easy, especially in a larger organization, to find volunteers. Um, practicing what we preach. So we had a few organisations around the table who were charities, research organisations, medical organisations, and something that was coming up with them was that they are very good at preaching well-being, but not so great at fostering it internally. So that was really interesting for me. Um, and also how to get colleagues to care for each other. So there was a lot of talk about line manager relationship, of course that being the number one determinant of workplace well-being. But it was also interesting to hear some organisations talking about how they're encouraging colleagues to look out for each other and to take care of each other when things get difficult. And then finally, making use of theme days and weeks. So obviously we have Mental Health Day coming up tomorrow, but there are all kinds of theme days and weeks that come up throughout the year and making advantage of those to drive home the wellbeing message, to keep reminding employees this is not about something that you know we do occasionally and then forget about it. It provides an opportunity to keep getting the message out there. Um, loads and loads of things that you've just gone through. Out of all those, is there anything that you've personally learned from um, that you're going to go and take back into your own organisation? So there were three things that came up for me that kind of built on my existing approach. One was having a library of in-house expertise. So one of the things that I do at DFT is really make use of the skills and resources that we've got in, in the organisation and volunteers to deliver stuff. Actually, what I've never done is put all those names and those skills down on paper in one place. So that idea was really fantastic for me. Then the second thing was um, a lovely idea that someone came out with for one-to-one -one meetings. So having a check-in and a check-out. At the beginning, you check in with the person, how are they feeling? And at the end, you check out with them, how are they feeling? And that I thought was lovely because it's so simple, so easy, and it gives the person the permission to talk about themselves and how they're feeling. And the third thing was the importance of having a brand that's relevant for the organisation. So when I started my role, I spent a lot of time investing in the well-being brand. Um, and honestly, I didn't really know why I was doing it. I just felt in my gut that it was important. And a lot of the delegates were talking about having a well-being brand that people can feel is their own, that belongs to the organisation, that I can identify with. So it was really interesting to hear that back, to kind of get that validation that even though I didn't have have a reason that I could articulate that I was doing it, I was actually on the right track. So it's, it's great, it's always, you know, you want to come away from somewhere like this with a few nuggets, which obviously you, you've done. If there was one thing you want to see employers doing more of uh, when it comes to well-being in the workplace, you know, that, that you want to ensure that message across, what, what, what would that be then? So I would love to see employers recognising that well-being is a necessity, not a luxury, um, and it's actually part of an investment in optimum performance. Um, but also I would love to see compassion being talked about more in the workplace. So I think compassion is a concept that is quite misunderstood in our society. It's often seen as being soft on people or, or indulging, but actually it's an essential component of a healthy society and a lack of it can actually lead to illness. So I think if, if organisations were to strive to be more compassionate towards their employees, they would really get the best out of them. That's great. Uh, Becky Thosby, uh, thanks for joining the show. And, and like all my guests, 
thanks for battling across such <laughs> such a noisy uh, exhibition area. But it's great here. It's so busy, isn't it? It's yeah, it's been, it's been great. A great buzz. Um, and thanks for our time together. I've really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you. So joining us now is Ian Howarth, an HR specialist in wellbeing from Fujitsu, who earlier today hosted a roundtable discussion here at the conference on the topic of resilience and how organizations can support their employees and create opportunities to engage in mental health and wellbeing programs in the workplace. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Hi, thank you. Uh, how was the roundtable session? It's really, really good. Um, really good diversity of organizations around the table. And I think that really helps kind of bring the reality of well-being in the corporate kind of sector to light. And um, we talked quite a bit about the misconception um, that resilience isn't just about trying to get your employees to cope better. There's far more to it than that. And, um, and, and, a, and another thread of discussion really was around the importance of how you take that sponsorship support into action. Yeah, I'm certainly getting that feel for the, you know, you mentioned the diversity of, uh, of organisations. There is a real mix here, isn't there, which is really great. There is. And, and one of the things that I've found in my role um, when, when I've been talking about organisations, not just today, is that what can work in a really large organisation, you know, can be the envy of someone in a small organisation, yet someone working in the wellbeing field in a large organisation can find the the, the opportunity to do that kind of similar activity in a small organisation yeah. much more appealing because you've got a concentrated kind of you know locations employees all in one place you can have a much more kind of engaging discussion sometimes yeah. so it's, it it's really is a helpful that kind of mix of organisations yeah, definitely, definitely well your, your session was billed um, as taking a whole person approach to resilience um, I was just wondering if you can explain a little bit more about what that exactly uh, what, what that means exactly yeah yeah sure so um, the whole person approach to resilience is recognising that we've got to be physically well in order to be, you know, our best, um, uh, but also mentally well. And um, and I kind of make no qualms about kind of using the word mentally. We have to be mentally strong. We have to be physically well, mentally well. Um, but it's also about your social well-being, your financial well-being. And so an organisation that's looking to support the well-being of its employees must kind of m- must kind of operate in the area that allows you to kind of touch all those subjects with your employees. Um, so it isn't just about what you give the employee it's around the environment that you create it's whether you're using technology in the right way to support the right working practices that just really enable that kind of person to strengthen their resilience in all areas can you can you share any programs that you've implemented at Fujitsu that are related to all all these uh, different aspects yes so we talk at Fujitsu about the importance of creating a positive health culture and in order to create that that culture then you've got to recognize that organizations work in fast-paced environments but to us particularly it's the mental capacity and capability of our employees that really helps set us kind of apart you know so we need our employees fresh coming up with creative ideas to our, our customers kind of you know problems and helping them kind of find solutions so what we do is we've done a, a number of activities and, and kind of will continue in this vein but around resilience training um, we've done some line manager round tables online conversations which really help kind of bring employees in for the conversation without the need for them to feel that they've got to be away from the desk or away from the jobs to, to kind of get involved. Um, but it's the approach that you take to those type of initiatives and those type of actions that really kind of make the difference. So with the line manager round tables, we talk to a select number of line managers and kind of, I guess, I kind of 
help them facilitate the session. So I give them the skills and the confidence that they need to facilitate the session because I guess people expect to hear me preaching and talking about the importance of well-being in the workplace. Um, but actually individuals will... I think sometimes it just comes with that real kind of air of credibility when you see a line manager talking to line managers around why this is important. Yeah. So, you know, we try to make sure that when we introduce well-being activities into the organisation, whether that be on the physical or the, the mental well-being, that we get line managers involved because they're the ones that can really help kind of affect change at the grassroots level. And, and, and so going back to the, the uh, roundtable discussion, were there any ideas and suggestions, um, you know, that, that were new to you that you thought, actually, that's quite interesting and, and, and you know, keen to share share with our listeners now? Um, I think there was a an element of understanding and appreciation between between us all that, you know, organisations don't have an easy job here, um, getting that balance right between employee accountability and employer accountability. So we've got a duty of care, but equally, we need to make sure that employees themselves have that kind of awareness and, and are supported in learning and engaging around their well-being themselves. Um, I think the, the one thing that really we would like to kind of take, I guess, from those sessions was the importance of how you prepare your workforce for tomorrow as well. So it's about looking after today and making sure that your employees' well-being is cared for, but also making sure that you're thinking ahead towards uh, towards the future as well and what future generations coming into the workplace right. might, might expect from you. And, and outside of, of your session, has there been any particular highlight for you from today's event? Anything that you've learned that you're going to be taking back to Fujitsu? Yes, definitely. Uh, and it came really early doors in the, uh, in, in the breakfast seminar, and that was hearing from young minds um, because the what they were able to bring to the to, to the conversation was an element that I think the corporate kind of um, world has to kind of switch on to is around how you make sure that your organisation is fit for the future in the context of well-being. So they talked about some of the challenges that our young people face today in, in terms of their kind of mental health and how that's being supported for them now through various channels, through education systems, through um, charitable organisations. But with that level of awareness at that level means that when those individuals then transition into the workplace, their level of expectation on us as an employer is going to be heightened as well and we've got to make sure that we are ready and able to respond to that you know so that's that's something i've definitely got a lot of homework to be going away and good doing. stuff good stuff uh, ian how thanks uh, for joining the podcast no problem thank you so joining me for our final interview of this episode uh, fresh from a panel session discussing how to gain boardroom uh, buy-in for investment into mental health and well-being initiatives is dr judith grant judith is director of health and well-being at the international consultancy and construction company uh, mace thanks for uh, coming straight out of your talk to uh, chat to us judith um, it's really really loud here <laughs> at, at, at the conference but how, how was the session Re- really good um it was great on the panel to have have, uh, we have someone from the HSC, so we have the regulator. Uh, Mace, uh, we're often principal contractor on uh, sites, and we had someone from the NHS, and then we also had Thames Water, who are often a client. So it's good to have that client, contractor, regulator, and then public health support as well. So it was a nice dynamic. Good. And any any particular highlights at all? Um, I think it, the key highlight was around actually what can the regulator maybe do to better encourage organisations to. Uh, uh, invest in mental health and make sure they're managing stresses at work. Um, 
but also what can we as organisations do to gather the data and actually the business case uh, for investment as well. So it has to be a bit of carrot and stick within organisations as to why we want to invest. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you um, about the industry that, that you work in in particular, so the construction industry. It, I was wondering if it provides a tougher challenge uh, for you to get the buy-in for your health, safety and, and well-being strategy um, or, or whether or not it's no different you know, to anywhere else. Um, I'd say it's probably no different. I imagine every organisation will have its challenges. In some respects, we're probably helped by the focus on safety that we have within the organisation because obviously construction is high risk. The focus on safety is paramount. Safety is the number one priority within the organisation. And by default, health should also be that priority. Um, it isn't always, but uh, we within the organisation are, I think, starting to get a bit more parity between the focus on health and the focus on safety. So as an organisation, we want to uh, um, obviously avoid harming people at work, whether that's physically or psychologically. And we know that the health and safety executive has got a real focus around managing stress at work, yes. musculoskeletal disorders, respiratory health, all of these health issues. So we know in terms of the, um, the regulatory requirements, we know what those are. But I think actually emotionally and um, the board care about their people um, and they want to do the best by them and they want to make sure the support's in place so that they, you know, people get the best out of their, their work life and their home life as well. Um, so it's not just about avoiding uh, regulatory responses for not managing stress, it's actually just the right thing to do. And I'm guessing you do research with your with your employees and your teams? Absolutely. So in, in November last year, we carried out a large-scale wellbeing survey across the organisation to better understand some of the leading uh, indicators around health and wellbeing in the organisation. So we looked at psychological wellbeing, we looked at resilience, engagement, uh, motivation, uh, we looked at physical health, and we looked at how those actually impacted on productivity uh, and presenteeism uh, in the organisation. And we found... Actually, ultimately, the well-being of our organisation is good, but down to sort of site level, we could see that um, those sites reporting higher levels of well-being often have higher levels of productivity. Uh, they had less presenteeism, uh, and they're kind of a bit more resilient. Uh, and we were able to cost that up and really build that financial business case for investing, and which is what we've now done. So we are investing in a, a five-year health and well-being plan that's closely aligned to the business goals and objectives in the business plan um, so it's real top top priority I just want to change the uh, the topic onto something that's, that has been uh, touched upon on here a couple of times and that's um, male suicide we, we know male suicide is around three times that of female suicide and according to the office for national statistics the UK construction industry reported more suicides than any other profession in the five years to the end of 2015 do you think the male dominance in the industry has had any reflection on that um, in terms of not talking about mental health and just looking on on your board uh, you know because I was looking on your website um, and, and I'm not saying this is any reflection of, of that statistic obviously but um, your board's very male dominated with just one woman out of ten board positions listing on, on, on that on that website I mean it's true to say that our industry uh, has had issues in 
past in terms of diversity. Um, but as a, an industry, not just in MACE, um, you're, start, you're starting to see a greater diversity of not just gender, but all other protected characteristics uh, within the organisation. But I think certainly the, um, the kind of male dominance, certainly within construction sites, because it's all very well talking about our board, but actually who are the people out on site, uh, on the tools who are delivering projects? The majority of them are men. There are females that work in construction, but the majority are men. They are therefore the highest risk population demographics around suicide. So, you know, between 1945 um, and their male. And, um, you know, there's a transient workforce often in construction. Uh, you know, people often staying away from their homes, their families, their, you know, their support networks. It can be lonely. Uh, often they're paid uh, maybe by the hour. Um, and again, it's, you know, perhaps a stressful occupation. Actually, what we need to do is not just MACE working on our own to look at mental health within our workforce. We need to be looking at it as a collective industry as how we can support people because our supply chain are maybe on our site one day, they might be on a Skanska site the next, a Lemley's site another day. So actually we need to be working with other principal contractors and with our clients, so the people we're building for, um, to look at how we can collectively uh, support mental uh, well-being right. um, across uh, our industry. Okay. Um, and, and so just coming back to the panel that you uh, just took part in here at, here at the session, what, what was the key takeout for you from that discussion? I think the key takeout was actually around listening to the organisation. So I know what well-being means to me, uh, but actually I asked each of our board members what well-being meant to them. And we asked the organisation through our survey uh, and through other forums, what does well-being mean to you? And that's how we've built uh, the, um, like the organisational plan around health and well-being. It's through listening to um, the people that work for and with us um, so that we can build something that actually resonates and is effective because everyone's bought into it. That's great. Uh, thanks, Judith, for joining us. In fact, that wraps up this podcast from um, the Mad World Forum. So thank you to all my guests who took the uh, time to chat to us today, to the organising team at Mad World, and, of course, to Nuffield Health for making this episode of the show happen and allowing us to record the interviews on their exhibition stand here at the event. Don't forget, if you want to discuss your corporate wellbeing needs with Nuffield Health, uh, you can get in touch with the team there via their website at nuffieldhealth.com. We hope you've got a lot out of this episode. We'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of mental health too. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn page. And those are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of SoundCloud or iTunes. And as I always ask, if you do use iTunes, uh, please do give us a positive rating and review uh, to help us up the business charts as it means more people get to hear about important topics like the ones we've been discussing today. Finally, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well, or you can reach me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.